School year 1998-1999. I was a student at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, my last year, my last full year there, and I was looking for a part-time job, weighing my options, and I decided that I would work for maintenance at the seminary. So uh, during the course of that year, I'd run into uh, an old friend of mine, Brian, as he was coming to take. He had a night class on Monday nights or something, and I'd be out mopping floors, and he'd come by, and we'd talk for a minute. And one day, the spring of 99, he stopped in, and we were talking, and he, he told me he was leaving his job as a youth pastor and was going on to do something else. And I was looking for a job in youth ministry and um, kind of talked about it. He thought that might be a good fit for me, so I put, put, my hat in the, put, put my name in the hat for that youth ministry job, ended up getting the job, uh, moved up, took, took the position at that church, got to know a family in that church, and got to be good friends with them. And this family had a friend, and they uh, were just certain I needed to meet this friend. And this friend's name was Tina. And we met, <coughs> and we married, and 22 years later, we have an Isaac, a Libby, a Sam, a Luke, and a Joel. But go back with me to that time when I'm deciding on this part-time job. And suppose I knew what was hanging in the balance, that if I, I, this job, this part-time job is going to lead to this kind of life 20 years down the road, and this other job is going to lead to this kind of life down the road, and this other job, and if I take this one, now I'm a hobo, and I'm hopping trains, I'm crossing the country, and I don't get married, and I don't have kids, and these eternal souls never even come into existence. All the enormous ripples that push out through human history from a small decision, a seemingly insignificant one, staggering to think about and terrifying, isn't it? To think that one small decision can put you here or here or somewhere else. Your life has been like that too. Seemingly small decisions have directly impacted your job, where you live, who you're married to, who you didn't marry, who your kids are, who your friends are. Every seemingly small decision has the, uh, has the ability to alter history, or at least the potential is the way it seems to us. In which case, how can I even make a decision knowing the weight of it, overwhelmed by the weight of that decision, and really unqualified, actually, unprepared? I don't have the, the amount of wisdom I need to make a good decision about some such things. And if it was true that our choices determine the future, if that was true, we'd be right to live in kind of a constant state of panic. But we see in the Bible, this is what we see in the Bible, that we are responsible for our choices, we make real decisions. At the same time, it's God who is in control of the future. And so we'll see with Paul in our text this morning. He, he seeks God. He, he does his best to follow. And then, and then he trusts the God who is in control. He's not paralyzed or crippled by the weight of the decisions he's making. In Acts 16, Paul is, is with his team, making decisions of incredible significance. He's on a missionary journey. And, and at this point, pretty much the whole world needs the gospel. And there are some established churches, and those churches need to be strengthened and encouraged. So Paul, he'd be extremely useful, extremely beneficial wherever he went. 
So how does he decide where to go? Go here and, and bring the gospel here, but not to these people? Strengthen these churches, but not these churches? How does he decide? Acts 16, beginning with verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, where we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the very word of God. Let's pray. God, we pray your, your word would, ha would have its way in us, that we would be eager to hear, to learn, to grow, to turn from ourselves, and to turn from you. Pray that you would uh, grant us humble hearts to receive with joy your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's with Silas and Timothy. Um, just from, from last week, verses 4 and 5, leading into our passage this morning, verse 4 said, As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. The churches are strengthened, they're growing. Something very interesting happens next. As they go from town to town, ministry is a great success. Whatever they're doing, it's working. It would make perfect sense for them to just keep doing whatever that is. But verse 6 says they were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And then verse 7 says, When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Verse 6, the Holy Spirit prevents them. Verse 7, it's the Spirit of Jesus. Those two phrases are used interchangeably. We don't ex know exactly how the Spirit was preventing Paul and his team from ministering where they intended to go. A vision or a prophecy, maybe, could just have been circumstances. For whatever reason, it didn't work out. They couldn't get there. And so the door was closed. We don't know what really happened, but we know this. We know that history is his story. History is his story. He's in charge. He is moving history to a destination of his choosing. He didn't just create the world and, and wind things up and let it go to see how it would turn out. And he doesn't just interfere in human affairs sporadically or intermittently. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
He upholds the universe. He is actively, day by day, moment by moment, holding everything together. His Spirit is at work in the world, day by day, moment by moment, not just moving history to some end, but convicting of sin, comforting believers, reminding them of the words of Jesus and who they are in Christ, creating faith, strengthening faith, opening blind eyes, granting power for bold witness and proclamation of the gospel, and so on. All of these things he is actively doing in the world right now. And I pray he is doing it in our midst right now. So Paul and his companions have, have some ideas. They want to go here and then here and, and then there. They have plans. But God has a different plan. Woody Allen said this a number of years ago. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Because our plans just rarely play out the way we hope or expect, right? And how that goes, this is life. It doesn't mean the world is out of control. It just means it's out of your control. It just means you are not sovereign. God is sovereign. Proverbs 16.1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We have aspirations in our hearts. We make plans. Those are ours. And then the actions and the words that, that come from us always fit in with God's plan. God ordains Whatsoever comes to pass, was how the Westminster Confession describes it, which is fantastically amazing. This is incredible. Your plans, your decisions, your actions, your choices belong to you. They are yours. You are not a robot merely moved on by the way you've been programmed. The choice is yours. You are free in that sense. You are responsible. My example from the beginning, I made choices. They, they belonged to me. I, I was not a puppet on a string, and neither was anyone else in that whole story. I decided to take that part-time job, and it was no accident. You know, 20 years later, and these children are here, and they are no accident either. And if they are no accident, if none of that was an accident, is anything an accident? Is there really anything in life that falls into that category. We make real choices, and the result is always what God wants. And you're probably wondering how. How can my actions be my own, and yet ordained by God? How can that be? And the problem we have here is that we tend to think it's one or the other, but the Bible teaches it is both. The Bible teaches it is both. For example, Acts 27. Someone will preach this next year in our series in Acts. So jumping the gun a little bit here, but I think it's instructive. Paul is on a boat with sailors and soldiers, and an awful storm comes upon them, and then an angel comes to Paul and informs him that God will spare all of their lives. God is going to do this. It's a sure thing. So Paul's sure of God's plan, confident no life will be lost. 
And then a short while later, the storm is continuing. The the sailors become fearful, and some of them try to sneak off the ship. And Paul gets wind of it. Acts 27, 31, Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, they cannot be saved. Well, which is it? Paul, do you you really believe in the certainty of God's plan? Is it a sure thing to keep everyone safe on the boat? Or must these men be made to stay with the ship in order for everyone to be safe? If God has ordained that no lives will be lost, why not just let them go? What could possibly happen? But Paul has a biblical perspective. We have real choices. God is sovereign. It is error to assume that since God is sovereign, our choices are insignificant, that they don't matter. It is an error to assume that. That's the kind of thing that happens when people use bad theology to justify reckless or lazy behavior. I'm not going to buckle my seatbelt because if it's my time, then it's my time. God's sovereign, so it doesn't matter if I buckle up or not. Our choices matter, but they don't matter sovereignly. (laughs) Because at the same time, we, we, we should not believe that we with our choices determine the future decisively. We should not believe that we with our choices determine the future decisively. That would make human beings sovereign. And that's a terrifying thought, the, the potential for any one of us with even a small choice to bring the whole thing down would be paralyzing. And this is not just about the omniscience of God. It's not just that God looks into the future and sees what will happen. He doesn't just know about our choices. He does know the future. He knows what we will do. But in this interplay between divine sovereignty and human action and responsibility is is much more than that. God acts decisively to accomplish his purposes. We'll see that with Lydia here in a moment. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord was active. Yes, God can look into the future and he can see what Lydia would do. He knows what she's going to do. She will do what everyone, every one of us will do apart from the work of God in our hearts. She will reject Jesus Christ. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God must act. More on Lydia later. Hopefully you've noticed that this in Acts, God is in charge. We see it here in this passage. Paul and his team doing fruitful ministry in Asia, but they have an appointment with some folks in Philippi. Lydia for one, a jailer for another, several others, a whole church of people actually, as the church in Philippi gets established. Paul will show up in Philippi and it will be no accident. Verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This this whole episode, an interesting account of divine guidance. Here's Paul, greatest missionary ever, many argue the greatest Christian 
ever, trying to figure out where to go next. Even he doesn't know. You almost think he, of all people, would have a direct line and he could just get on the line with God and God would tell him, but he doesn't. He has to figure it out. So again, all of our decisions are significant. They matter. We can cause pain for ourselves and and others with our actions. We can do good for ourselves and others with the things we do, but but not ultimately, not in a sovereign way, not such that the hand of God is overruled. Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We can rest in that because God is sovereign. So first of all, in terms of divine guidance, we, we trust that he is the ultimate actor. The life of faith is trusting in him. Trust is not a substitute for action. Trust is not passive. As we trust and if we trust, we act in obedience to our sovereign, not because we are sovereign, because he is. And then we'll see how Paul receives divine guidance. Tim Keller does a fantastic job of laying all of this out in a sermon titled, Does God Control Everything? You can find this on YouTube if you're interested. And Tim Keller says this, God's guidance is more something God does than God gives. God's guidance is more something God does than God gives. And you've experienced this when a door closes. You were trying to do this thing and be about this and it just didn't work out and you had to shift and do something else. The door closed. That's God guiding. And we see that here with Paul. Couldn't go to Asia. Tried Bithynia. Couldn't go to Bithynia. And he gets a vision. Yes, but notice even with this vision that Paul gets, he still has to discern what it means and what they should do. Verse 10 says they, the group, reached a conclusion about what they should do in response to the vision. And I think what's instructive from these missionaries is their response in verse 10. Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia. Whatever way they sensed God was leading, they were going to go that way and go that way immediately. It wasn't just one option. They didn't call a meeting and discuss, you know, well, we hear God, he's, he's saying this thing about Macedonia, that's definitely on the table. Um, Bithynia, though, maybe we should give that one another run, that seemed like a good idea. It wasn't like that at all. They, they discerned God was leading them to Macedonia, then they're going to Macedonia. That's where they're headed. So, so the big question is not so much, what exact direction should I go? It's, Will I obey what has been revealed to me? Will will I be obedient to what I know? Decision-making and the will of God is less about the decision and more about the person making the decision. Less about the decision, more about the person making the decision. What kind of person am I? That's where decisions need to start. So let's run through this just a little bit. What kind of a person does God want me to be? First of all, God wants me to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Thessalonians 
God wants me to be sanctified. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. God wants me to be sanctified. That is set apart for his service. To be about his business. To live for him and for his glory in our sexuality and all other ways as well. God wants me to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with spirits, alcohol, mood-altering drugs, whatever. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And for one thing, this involves being filled with the Word, with God's Word, reading, studying, memorizing Scripture, trusting it, hoping in it. In our family roadmap this month, we're encouraging you to memorize at least one Bible verse. Maybe pick one from your handout this morning if you haven't already. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God wants me to be joyful, prayerful, and grateful. He says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God. Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord. Proverbs 3.5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Great passage about divine guidance and it starts with seeking Him and acknowledging Him and trusting Him. So many of the decisions that you sweat are just far less important than making sure you are saved, that you are thanking, that you're trusting, that you're seeking, that you're living in surrender, that you're rejoicing, and so on. We see that here with Paul. He's just going to go about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Wherever he ends up, that's just going to be what he does. So he makes, some plan, he makes plans, sure, but he holds them loosely. So that he can go wherever God wants him to go. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Paul's strategy on his missionary journeys was, was to go to the synagogue as soon as he came to town. He had some standing as a, as a trained rabbi, and he could reason with people who had the scriptures and who considered them given by God and who desired to live in submission to them. Paul could start with their scriptures and explain how they pointed to Jesus, how they were fulfilled in Jesus, how they were all about Jesus. But Philippi did not have a synagogue. So Paul locates what would have been the seeds of a synagogue, this prayer gathering down by the river. Here, here are some women who came together, and, and the one we know by name is Lydia. Lydia, pr probably safe to say Lydia was, was pretty well off financially. She was a seller of purple goods. Purple dye was extremely rare and thus expensive at that time, so she's a retailer of luxury goods. She had a home and a household. A household would consist of 
family members and servants. Most of the rest of the world would look at her and say, Lydia has it all. She's got it all. I was reading about Martin Lloyd-Jones recently. He was a surgeon in London, England in the 1920s. He was a rising star in the medical field who was distinguished in a great number of ways. He became a member of the Royal College of Physicians at the age of 25. The president of the Royal College of Physicians, Sir James Patterson Ross, referred to Lloyd-Jones as one of the finest clinicians I have ever encountered. Martin Lloyd-Jones had achievements that were significant. He was well-known and respected. He was financially well-off. He was a moral and very religious person, the kind of person you would look at and say, that guy has it all. He's got it all. But Martin Lloyd-Jones would not have said that about himself. He had a gnawing emptiness inside of him. He was unhappy, and he could see that life was fleeting. There must be more to life than this, was his thought process. And one day he witnessed a mentor of his, a man more distinguished, more influential, more affluent than himself. And this mentor had a girlfriend who had passed away. So the mentor came into the room where Martin Lloyd-Jones was, and there was a fire, and he, just, he asked if he could just sit by the fire. And he sat by that fi- fire for hour after hour, just staring at the fire, which wasn't wrong or maybe even terribly unusual. But Martin Lloyd-Jones was shaken by this because here was a man that had everything the world had to offer, Everything that he himself was striving for. And this man, his own foundations and his own security were as fragile as anyone's. Whatever you're looking for in life, it will never be enough. It will never fill the void in your soul. And I think Lydia had come to this point. She has it all. And at the same time realizes it's not enough. Verse 14 says she was a worshiper of God. Basically, this means she was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew, but she was trying to learn about the God of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, trying to worship him. From the Old Testament, then, she would have learned the promise made to Abraham, that Abraham, that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed She would have learned about Moses, through whom God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, which gave the the people a great way to live, but was impossible to fulfill. She would have learned about the sacrificial system, which figures so prominently in the Hebrew Scriptures, all of the blood sacrifices that were made in response to these failures to fulfill the law. The sacrificial system showed that God had a way for sin to be atoned for. But it would seem, though, that the people of Israel, by and large, didn't get this idea that the law and the sacrifices, for example, were all pointing to something greater that weren't an end in themselves. For the most part, then, the law-keeping, the ritual following, the festival and ceremony observing became religion to them. And by religion, I mean efforts to earn salvation. If I can obey enough commandments, observe enough Sabbaths, bring enough animals to sacrifice, I can be right with God. Trying to balance the imaginary scales, right? Trying to have more good on on this side than not good enough on this side. That's religion. 
That's where Lydia was until she put her faith in the one true God. She knew there was something more. She had a sense there was this spiritual dimension to life that she hadn't figured out. She's going to give it a shot, but she doesn't quite get it. There's a missing piece. There's a key. She needs the gospel. And she has one other problem. Paul describes it in Romans 8, 7. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The mind set on the flesh is the mind we all start with. We're created to be, first of all, oriented to God, to live in fellowship with Him, to live in glad submission to Him, and then to be others-centered, others-oriented. But sin inside of us, we are turned inward. We are now self-first. We are run by our desires, our preferences, our own inflated sense of importance. Our minds are set on the flesh, set on what we want. We are hostile to God. We try to put on a good face, maybe, try to stay on good terms with God, try to appease Him with some of the things we do. We will take His gifts, for sure. We'll take His help if He will help us get some of these things that we're trying to have in life. We may even have some measure of gratitude, but we won't actually love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We will not live in glad surrender to Him. We will not submit to God's law. My unregenerate mind does not submit to God's law. Unregenerate is the mind prior to conversion. It's the mind before we're born again, before we're born of the Spirit. Your unregenerate mind does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you see Lydia's problem? She must submit to God. But she cannot. She is hostile to God. She doesn't see His beauty. She doesn't know grace. She doesn't see the glory of of the grace of God so giving, so loving, so good. If she has a sense of it, it has not stirred her heart in wonder and adoration. And it never will because she is blind to it. And then Paul shows up. Paul's message was always about Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He is the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. He fulfilled the law of Moses, the only human being ever to live an absolutely perfect and righteous life, the only one who actually loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, the only one to actually love his neighbor as himself. He was the one who fulfilled the law Perfectly, the perfect Lamb of God did what no other sacrificial lamb could do. He was the one true sacrifice that all the other sacrifices were pointing to. He deserved the blessing of a perfect life. He deserved it. But instead, his life ended cursed, crucified on a cross. An incomprehensible exchange took place. At the cross, he took the curse my life deserves. 
Believers, he took the curse your life deserves. That cross was ours. Our curse was transferred to him. And his blessing transferred to us. That's the gospel. That's the message of Jesus. Paul's exact words, we do not know. But verse 14 says this about what was happening to Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God did for Lydia what she could not do. 2 Corinthians 4.4 In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers, those with their minds set on the flesh, they can hear the gospel. They can even understand it intellectually and be unmoved by the gospel because they are blind to it, blind to the glory of it. It is not glorious to them. 2 Corinthians 4, Verse 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To hearts in darkness, hearts unable to see the glory of Christ, God has turned on the light. The light is on. Suddenly, God is glorious to Lydia in the face of Jesus Christ. Suddenly, she can submit to God because she is seeing him for, the, for who he is, for the treasure of inestimable worth that he is. She is realizing this treasure is greater than anything she owns. Like the man in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his, in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. This man discovers a new treasure. It's greater than all he's got put together. His value system is turned upside down. He sells all that he has, not out of a sense of duty, not simply because it's the right thing to do, but gladly with joy because his new treasure is infinitely more valuable than anything he has. This is a mark of conversion. He's operating out of the want to rather than have to. Like Lydia now we see in her life, it's a joy to give and serve and worship God because your great treasure is no longer having. Your treasure is no longer being first. Your treasure is no longer the world, the universe revolving around you. You've discovered a new treasure. Verse 15. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Like the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8, he received the gospel. And then he saw some water and he said, Why shouldn't I be baptized? Lydia has that same urgency. She's baptized her household of family members and servants. I expect it's the members of her household who believed, believe and be baptized was the command from Mark 16. And then she's aggressive with her hospitality. She's eager to give, eager to serve. Martin Lloyd-Jones became a Christian. 
and soon discovered he was a tremendous preacher. By the way, you can hear his sermons. They are recorded. They have audio of his sermons from um, many years ago. You can find them online. He was a tremendous preacher. He was a great doctor, but clearly called to ministry. So he left behind a career as a world-class surgeon and went into ministry. This involved a 90% cut in pay. Some years after that happened, a reporter came to him, and the reporter said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, many people were intrigued when you made this choice. You gave up so much. There were so many things in your life you had to give up. And I'm sure there has been a great deal of enjoyment and satisfaction doing what you've done. But I've come here to find out, on balance, after reflecting and weighing everything up, was it worth it? And the account I read of this said Martin Lloyd-Jones growled. (laughs) Lloyd-Jones growled, I gave up nothing. I received everything. Can you growl with Martin Lloyd-Jones? I gave up nothing. I received everything. With Lydia, who realized what she had was nothing compared to the glory of Christ. All the luxury goods she dealt in, nothing compared to the pearl of great price. How spectacular was this thing God did in her life. Paul's missionary journey didn't run through Philippi by accident. This was no chance meeting. Can't go to Asia, can't go to Bithynia, Paul, Macedonia. I have some kids there you need to pick up. You don't know them yet, but I know them. You have an appointment. And there's Lydia circled up with these ladies trying to learn about the God of the Bible, and these guys just show up. Tell them what it's really about. And God turns on the light. And if you're in Christ, you're pretty much the same story. God put people in your life. Christian parents, many of you, were put in your life. You didn't choose them. Just there they are. They just showed up. You didn't pick them. They really didn't even pick you. Or you just happen to work with this person or live next to that guy or go to school with these people and they shared the gospel with you or invited you to church or influenced you for Christ in some way. Somehow, somewhere, you heard about the the truth about Jesus Christ and it was no accident. And then somewhere along the line, it clicked. The gospel became to you Good news. It became your good news. And that was no accident either. The light came on. Because God said, let there be light. The Lord opened your heart. Praise God. And maybe you're here today and you're not sure that's you. God's will is for me to be saved. I don't know if I'm saved. But here you are. You're hearing the word of God. You're hearing the gospel. I pray that's happening. And there's an invitation for you. Revelation 22, 17. It says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's free of charge. To any who would call on the name of the Lord. 
Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To call on the Lord Jesus Christ is to look away from yourself. Take a look away from what you've done, what you can do, any good works that you think are accruing to your account, to look away from all of that and look to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone as the one who saves. He is mighty to save, Zephaniah 3.17. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, Hebrews 7.25. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He loves to save sinners. He came to seek and save the lost He came, not for the righteous, he came for the unrighteous. If you have not come to him, if you have not called on him, don't let another moment pass you by without confessing to him that you are stuck in sin, that you are deserving of eternal hell, that you are unable to save yourself. And receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. Because in Him, you receive grace. You receive the forgiveness of sin. You receive His righteousness. And a new heart. A heart that treasures Him. That sees Him for who He is. That desires to live in obedience to Him. Isaiah 1.18. I'll close with this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Let's pray. God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you've done, that you sovereignly bring your children to yourself. Because of your great love, because you are full of mercy, because of who you are. You've done it all. We give you praise. You've even turned on the light for us that we might see you and know you and trust in you. It's all because of you, and so we give you praise. And for any here who don't know you this morning, pray that you would turn on the light for them as well. Pray that they would put their hope in you to turn and trust and follow you. Ask for this in Jesus' name.